Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at chime.com build. That's chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Good evening, listeners. So today, Mike and I are joined by a very special guest. She's a best-selling author who just recently released a new book. She's a television personality, an entrepreneur, and investor. So I'd like to introduce Carol Roth. Carol, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. And uh, you know, as I always like to say, I advocate for small government, small business, and big hair. So just so we know where I stand right at the beginning. <laughs> I'm about all those things. Love it. Yeah. So I just finished your book today. I, I tried to get it done. I, was, I did the audiobook version. Um, and I was finally able to finish it today, and it was phenomenal. I mean, I, I really enjoyed every part of it. Kept my attention the entire length, even though it was like a nine-hour listen. I just did it while I was driving throughout the week. Um, but you know what I really enjoyed about it was for this was the first time I've looked back on 2020 in like a chronological historical lens, like you walked wow. us back through how it all went down. And when we all just lived through it in real time, it was so interesting as a reader to go back in real time and see how that played out and how much more preposterous so many of these events were looking back just a year later. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. That was fascinating to me, even writing the book. And I had created a timeline that was much longer that my editor said, no, you can't include all of that stuff. You have to, you have to shorten it up and like get to the point here. Um, but just living through it real time, we didn't absorb sort of all of the information that was happening. A lot of it was rewritten in real time by the media and we were gaslit about what it was that had happened. Um, so to kind of go back and put it all together it really is very staggering, kind of lays out, you know, how this all really went off the rails. And I think um, you know, one of the things that I'm proud of is that this is not a partisan book. Like everyone gets thrown under the bus when they need to get thrown under the bus. And if they did something fine, they, they did something fine. They get the props for that. And it doesn't matter what party this is just trying to be an actual account. And the sources are, you know, mainstream media sources and other things, but it's interesting to watch them even sort of rewrite stuff um, real time. So I, I'm glad that resonated with you. Yeah. And what I really kind of made me think a little bit longer term about that is it's so important for someone to document that for future generations. Cause a lot of this history might get rewritten and likely will be. Um, it's already has, it already has been, which is exactly yes. <laughs> what's happened um, you know, with this wealth transfer. So yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact like you said, when people look back and they need an actual account of it, that it will um, be documented, assume, assuming that it doesn't get like canceled and burned and whatever else. So. <laughs> yes, that's why you should buy multiple copies now and bury right, one. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> in a safe place. Yeah, there's there is a growing movement of people that are are back to buying physical copies of things and getting away from digital because 
you've already seen it. I mean, even as something as simple as when they, they remastered the original Star Wars trilogy, they edited in the new Anakin Skywalker. So if they can do it to Star Wars, they can do it to anything. <laughs> That's a really a good rule for life, I feel like. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I, y- your book was... You're, 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 when you quoted my tweet saying it's, it's, a, it's a horror movie, but it's true, I was like, it, that was a perfect summary of all this, how it played out. Like, I, I, I'd finish a chapter and I'd be like, oh, I think I have high blood pressure now. Like, this, it's just, it's, it's so frustrating the gross levels of incompetence and, and disgusting cronyism. I, I really do think a lot of this was some bureaucracy and some just maliciousness. And I I don't think people are comprehending it yet. Like they're like, Oh, my gas prices are high or I couldn't believe how much an avocado cost, but we haven't even seen what this is going to do. I mean, this is going to be probably a decade long struggle. Yeah. Or, or longer. I mean, just given the, the psychological damage that some of these young kids are enduring and I've been watching um, documentaries and stuff on sort of the, healthcare side of things, which is equally as scary. I didn't obviously spend time there because that's my, my domain expertise. Um, I try mm-hmm. to keep it more from a, an economic and, and you know, kind of news side of things. Um, but you know, it, there is a lot of battles to be had because there's still people who think that we had full lockdowns. And that's, you know, like the first bad thing to say is like, no, we didn't have lockdowns. We weren't all in this together. There were large uh, percentages of the population and a large number of the businesses, particularly the big and, and powerful connected ones that were allowed to operate. So it's not like I'm even trying to convince you, you know, that you should be on the side of liberty or you should be on the side of lockdowns. It's the awareness that neither of those things happened. And this hodgepodge of what happened in the middle was the worst of all worlds because you didn't have the full lockdowns where everyone was in it together. It was strict. And then you had the pain. So you had the pushback from the big guys saying, well, you're not supporting the stock market. You're letting our big businesses fail. Like, you know, we, we need to stop this. So it just kept going on and on with no end in sight. I mean, here we are 15 months later and there are still businesses who are locked down and you didn't have obviously the, the full liberties and the ones who were targeted, who were targeted, by the way, not based on data or science, but really based on political clout and connections didn't receive appropriate compensation. So if you're somebody who's in the lockdown crowd, that's fine as long as you believe in property rights and eminent domain and say, okay, well, these people who were targeted, those are the people who should have been appropriately compensated. And that clearly didn't happen. And so it's trying to educate people to get out of their sort of political media-driven narratives and to really look at what happened and the the staggering effects and as you guys said i mean this is the most historic wealth transfer from main street Mm -hmm. to wall street that we have ever seen in all of history like the entire history of the world and like you said that the consequences of this are going to be long and people are going to look back at this point in time in history and go oh my god this was an inflection Mm -hmm. and you know i i really enjoyed about it again echo you guys hear that a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully it's not in the recording. But um, I really enjoyed how uh, you're from Illinois, and so are we. So usually when I hear people talk about the whole pandemic and all the lockdowns, it's like Cuomo, Newsom, Cuomo, Newsom. No one ever talks about Pritzker. So there's so many elements in your book where you brought up the Illinois lockdowns that I can relate to and be like, finally, somebody's talking about it. So are you in the city of Chicago in the limits? literally right downtown. <laughs> okay. So uh, you know, we, we saw this crazy, um, very negative transformation of the city over the last 12 to 15 months. And I'm from Illinois originally. I grew up in the suburbs. You know, Chicago is my home. My husband's from California. We moved back here. So like, you know, kind of this is where family is. And, you know, I'm, I'm always showing love to Chicago. And this is the first time in my lifetime where I really have a pretty sad feeling about my relationship with the city, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I was going to ask you why you're still here then. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> if it's I had a way out right now. It's family tax, right? Yes. And, you know, it's, it's the theoretical, it's the history that I have here and the hopes that I have um, because it's not, the, the people are great. 
right? The 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 geography is great. There's there's so much history. <clears throat> there's family, but yeah, man, it's um, it's a, it's a sad time for the city. Yeah, it really we're is. we're out in the Rockford area, so yeah. we we've not we're not too far, but. I'm kind of in the same boat. Got a, my wife has a huge Italian family. I got a huge Italian family. We're deeply rooted. Multiple other reasons I can't talk about on here holding me here, but it's like I want out of here so bad. I wish I could leave here because it's, it's just getting so, uh, just not, not a lot of freedom. I mean, it's everything that I love is being taken away from us, and they're making it harder and harder. And the school systems and everything are just not my principles, and it's really hard to to keep watching this develop in front of us. Yeah, and it's the limitations. Part of this broader war on small business and this wealth transfer is part of this larger attack um, on capitalism and wealth creation in the United States. And so obviously owning a business is one way that you can create equity ownership in something and, and get money or build wealth. Um, obviously investing in the stock markets is another, but that's been disrupted risk-wise and it's much riskier to try to do that. Same thing with home ownership; it's become more difficult. And then, if you can even get into a home, um, the inflation, the government inflation, in terms of property taxes, that have driven so many people I know, and I don't know if it's the same way in Rockford, but like in Lake County, in some parts of Cook County, you know, I know middle class families who've had to severely downsize because they've seen their taxes go from like $5,000 a year to $15,000 a year. And yep. they can't afford that on, and like, by the way, just like a, a normal middle-class, you know, basic house, like not like a huge McMansion or anything like that. So it's really, the government has, has been making it harder and harder for people to create and retain wealth in this country, which is our economic freedom and our opportunity and why people from all over the globe come here. And that's part of this whole story and part of what people should be aware of and aware of the Federal Reserve's role in that, which I spent a lot of time on, um, and and really be pushing back on this because this isn't capitalism that's doing this, guys. This is no. the government. Yeah, that's a perfect segue because my next question was your your chapter four. You spent a lot of time on the Federal Reserve, which chapter um, five actually. Oh, was that five? No, it was oh, five. Sorry. Yes. yes. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I, I, I crammed it. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I had my notes wrong. But anyhow, um, expand upon that to our listeners why. They need to understand what the Federal Reserve is, what it does, and how it had an impact on the situation and why you felt that was so important to spend a whole chapter on. Yeah, I mean, they have been, um, particularly you know, since the Great Recession, but you know, starting a little bit before that as well with more intervention in the market, but they have been the government's sort of co-conspirator in this transfer of wealth. And while people understand fiscal policy, they don't understand what the Fed is, and that's by design. And I talk about the history of why that, that is by design in the book. Um, it's meant to be opaque, and it, it fundamentally doesn't make any sense. So just to just recap a few things that I talk about in the book. So it's theoretically this independent entity that is quote unquote owned by these 12 reserve banks that are quote unquote owned by other banks. But when the Fed makes a profit, those owners don't participate in that. That money goes back to the US Treasury. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. And then they derive their mandate from Congress and their mandate is to stabilize prices and to ensure maximum employment. Well, why would you have an independent entity able to do that? And then they go out and uh, they're not supposed to be doing this, but they do. They're basically monetizing our national debt. When the government overspends, like they do with COVID, they didn't have to go and find investors or other countries to come in and pay for that. They just bought it themselves, like using trickery like they go in and create a, a, a journal entry and say oh we have this much money like <laughs> if we all did that that would be called fraud right, right. but so, somehow they can get away with just doing that um and so for them to have the level of power that they do to suppress interest rates artificially to say that you know there's zero risk for, for baseline for money. So like if you're putting your money in a bank 
and you're a, a retiree or saver, you're going to earn like nothing on it, but we're going to loan it out to these other companies at a very low rate. And then they're going to go out and be able to, to expand their businesses. And that's going to drive more capital in the market and it's going to expand valuation. So if you want to earn a return on your money, it's going to like make you take on additional risk. It gives these big companies outsized ability to compete um, and to do things that are crazy, like BlackRock going up and competing with you to buy a house in a neighborhood. Uh, and this is all driven by, by their policy. So they're suppressing interest rates. They've made up at this point almost $8 trillion that they have sitting on their balance sheet that they have pumped into the markets and bought back securities many of which, again, have been issued by the government. So it's like this really weird circular Ponzi scheme. And the impact of that on the wealth transfer, obviously we know that when you shut down a small business and that business goes to Amazon, we can all understand, okay, well, that means their revenues increase because people were spending more dollars there. But that second level of all that money, that the trillions of dollars that went into the market over the last, you know, 12 to 15 months in 2020 seven tech companies gained 3.4 trillion dollars in value oh by the way how much did the federal reserve put into the market so like that wasn't going to save main street that literally was a direct transfer to the biggest company so they got bigger they got more powerful both on a fiscal front and a monetary front you need to understand that because that's a huge driver again of, of suppressing these wealth creation opportunities and slanting the playing field and it's one that most americans can't begin to understand which is why i try to break it down in really easy to understand language so you can start focusing on these things and when it's talked about in the financial news you can understand the implications I, I did love how you you broke it down because I feel like oftentimes, especially in like libertarian circles, it's they go too in Walking. too deep. <laughs> and, and like and, well, and like when they when they're talking about like the Federal Reserve and stuff, like most people are like, yeah, whatever, I don't I, care. I like think my money is the world you're looking for. Yeah, <laughs> like they, you know. They just they go they go too in depth and most people are like yeah whatever my money you know I go to the gas station they still take my dollars I don't care and so I like how you you broke it down like why this is bad and you know I I felt like during the lockdowns I would I would watch like Fox Business and I just wanted to scream into the void like I, I just was like you guys got to understand because everyone's like oh my stimulus money and like I was like you got to understand. They're only giving you crumbs so that you don't burn down the local state house. Mm -hmm. That's all that was. It was nothing more. And I was like, it's your tax dollars. Well, actually, it's probably our great grandchildren's tax dollars. But I, I was like, this this is your money. They're just buying you off to and like it's like, you know, the classic look over here so that you don't see what we're doing here. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like you're counting your like twelve hundred dollars. Meanwhile, they're driving a Brinks truck with a trillion dollars yeah. behind you and you don't notice it because you're sitting and looking at your crumbs here. This was the trick that they pulled and the, the impact that it has, again, on wealth creation and what it does potentially to threaten the value of our entire financial system, um, which, you know, again, we, I talk a little bit about in the book, but could be an entire book in and of itself, uh, is really, really scary stuff. And again, it's not meant to help the little guy or to help Main Street or to boost the economy. It's literally a direct wealth transfer. Yeah. Yeah. And I I remember when that first round of stimulus came out, I had friends that were, you know, I was fortunate enough that I didn't go out of work at all. I was able to stay working full time. I didn't want any government cheese. I've never taken a penny in my life. I was like, I don't even want this. I'm not signing up for it. But I had friends that are public se sector workers like cops and teachers, and they were people I'm in contact with and they're all excited to get it. They're like, Oh, it's coming next week. 1200 bucks. Cha-ching. And it's like, guys, there cannot be like no strings attached. This is like, don't get excited about this. Number one, it's going to destroy the value of our dollar. Number two, I don't know what they're up to, but there's got to be strings attached. There's no just free money, but it, it's ironic how these are the same people who are like advocating for a UBI as well. They would love <laughs> to have that. Even though we just had a small scale test and all it did is make a bunch of, small group of people get super wealthy they can't deduce that and see how that all works out in real life when you try to like you kept saying in the book like uh you know good intentions 
what they right. actually lead to. It's the road to hell. Yeah, I mean, I, there's an article that came out, I think it was yesterday, that was fairly widely lampooned by anybody who like had half a brain cell. But it was from CNBC, which is really disappointing. Inflation making yeah, wages I, rise. Silver lining. As a contributor for many years, and it was like, the, the good side of inflation, higher salaries. And it's like, oh my God, great, you made 50 extra cents. Now you're going to spend $23 for a slice of pizza. But hey, good for you. I mean, for, for CNBC, which is obviously generally very reputable in terms of their financial reporting and have a lot of smart people who work there. I, I was legitimately horrified by that. Yeah, I went cross-eyed when I saw that headline. I was like, <laughs> like, well, that's me, you, you realize you're just being played like a violin. It's like, they know this, like, what are they trying to do? What's their end goal? There's no way that nobody there knows that this is like just a ridiculous headline. Right, like, like, they all know it. Past, like multiple right. editors and like nobody who works there go, guys, like, come on, like you can't. And, you and can't it's scarier that I think they intentionally put out there when they know that it's nonsense that they're trying yeah. to like control the narrative and make people believe that, hey, well, it doesn't matter if prices go up because so will my wage. So what's the difference? Like they're trying to make that the normal conversation, but. Yeah, when I was yeah. on with Tim Pool a week or two ago, you know, he was saying that and showing all the um, uh, the articles from the media about like, oh, well, why you might not want to own a home and how renting is great. And then, you know, you go look at the World Economic Forum's predictions for 2030 and all of theirs, like, yep. you'll own nothing and you'll rent everything and you'll be happy. And like, <laughs> it is like, again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm like a very kind of logic and like detail person, but there's a little bit of like, yeah, that doesn't sit right with me. So yeah, turn the whole country into San Francisco. We'll all just own nothing and live in tents and be happy. <laughs> Yeah, but it's working out very well for that. Scene. Very well. Only in Illinois, you know, it's only half the year we even can be allowed to be outside with this weather. But well, where, um, where I live, I'm I'm right next to Lower Wacker, and so you know, there's always been a little bit of a problem. But like the whole thing is full of encampments, oh, yeah. and it's it's tragic. Like you don't, I mean, these these are human beings. You don't want to to see this happen, and you just see the amount of money that they waste on all kinds of nonsense and then you're you're ending up with this situation at the same time and for anyone to go oh well you know we need more government it's like yeah i, I don't know what you're looking at i don't know what you've been through the last 12 to 15 months yeah. through it's like years. stockholm syndrome it really is it yeah. is and i you know we've i've lived in rockford my entire life or the rockford area and i never saw a homeless person ever in rockford like i mean i'm, I'm like the bad side of Rockford there was, but not in like the nice state street area sure, yeah. downtown. Never. But in the past two years, every time I go downtown at like the big like intersections, there's homeless people on every median at a four wow. intersection like, every single time I go there. And it's like, this is spilling over and it's not from capitalism. <laughs> it's, no. it's from, you know, uh, government and regulation and all these different elements that come into the to, to create all these handouts and incentivize this behavior that it's bleeding into smaller towns now it's not just the big cities yeah. and it's really and, sad to watch and part of the problem is people have we we have um, destroyed the concept of the republic and the state's rights and we've moved more power to the federal government and everybody's shifted their focus nationally and away from their state and local communities is not only do you have fewer dollars in your communities because the, the federal government is controlling it and obviously take, taking their cut and doing whatever they need, but it, people have abdicated their responsibility to their communities. So what might have been, you know, more dollars in your pocket and the ability to fund a, you know, a church or a charity locally and really get involved with that, um, you know, people aren't even focused on that because they're trying to keep up with the, you know, federal government as well as some of the explosion of the local with the property taxes and, and whatnot. So we've really gotten away from that community model uh, to a government model, and it's not to the benefit of helping people in need. So you t also touched on um, how they're running out of arrows in their quiver. So now in 2008, they, they had a full quiver. They had all the Lots tricks ready to go. <laughs> and I don't see it now. And you touched on it in the book as well. Like, what happens when they, I mean, unless they've cracked the matrix and there's, there's no more rules and laws of economics, which maybe I've, I've been waiting for 
the last six months, like something's right. got to give. Right. Um, what happens when they finally reach a point where like they have to raise interest rates? I mean, for, yeah. for people that haven't, you know, read the book or haven't looked into this, like how, how do you break that down for them? How do you see that playing out? I say this is the $30 trillion question. And if I had a really good answer, I'd be on my yacht in the Mediterranean and not having this discussion with you right now. Um, this is historic on so many levels. It's historic in duration. It's historic in amount. It's historic from a reserve current, the world reserve currency standpoint. And it's historic, as I like to say, because we're the skinniest kid at fat camp. Um, you know, we're also, we have a booming market that's denominated in dollars. We have a lot of money flowing through the IRS that's denominated in dollars. We have a big military. And then we have central banks in Europe and Japan that have also been printing like it's going out of style. So... And then, oh, by the way, there's fiscal policy on top of this, which could, you know, create flowing or heating up of different things as well. So there's like a slew, like a dozen potential outcomes. Um, it could be anything from just like insane hyperinflation that like, you know, it has a contagion worldwide. Because again, us being the reserve currency, like anything that happens here is going to have like this worldwide effect. It could just be like mm -hmm. a coll entire collapse um, of the dollar that like brings about a world war. Uh, it could be, I my bet in the short term is stagflation, where you have a stagnating economy and you don't get a lot of growth, especially with some of the fiscal policies coming out of the Biden administration. If any of those get enacted, I think that's going to tamp down growth. Um, as well as some of the decisions that's, that have been made over the last 12 to 15 months. But you still have the money supply that is you know, out there and needs to go somewhere. And so uh, you get inflation in terms of prices and wages, but not growth in the overall economy. So I could see that as a scenario, which isn't very good. And then I've been bantering about like this concept, um, which I'm hearing other people have been talked about too, that again, since we're the world reserve currency and like as much as people hate us, they really don't want to see it all go to crap because like, like we'll take down the whole world with us. You know, it's not like we're going down quietly and we owe a lot of the money to ourselves. So I could just see this like random cancellation where like we start going, well, China, like you unleashed a virus on us and you've been screwing us on IP. So like, you're not getting your money. You're not getting your, we're going to cancel your trillion dollars or whatever. And like, I mean, who in the world's going to care if we do that? I mean, China's, you know, been wreaking havoc on everybody. So maybe everyone just kind of agrees to buy into that. We cancel the debt to ourselves saying, well, it's just an obligation that we're going to have to pay in terms of tax dollars anyway. So like, what's the difference? And then you just get this like weird, scenario, which again, still ends up hurting the people at the low end of the totem pole who don't have hard assets, but anybody who's already wealthy, you know, they kind of get it to keep their peace and there isn't that much dislocation. I, I mean, I don't know if they can do that, but that's like a weird hypothesis because this has never happened before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Like what I do know is that even though, and you kind of alluded to this, Tyler, that anything, anytime you take action, like it begets an outcome. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like you can't escape not having any outcomes over longer periods of time. You can escape, you know, some of them, or you can at least hide some of them for some period of times, but like they beget some sort of an outcome. So it's not like nothing is going to happen. We just have no idea what it is. And that's hard. It's hard to plan when you have no, what I do know is if it all goes to crap, Guns and ammo are going to be valuable and seeds are going to be valuable and water supply, fresh water is going to be valuable. Those will always retain value. Yep. Land, if you own it, will probably be a good thing. Other than that, I, I don't know what I, what I can tell you. Well, and that's, I, I was actually going to joke about that, that gun owners have been seeing inflation for months right. ahead of everyone else. Right. <laughs> I call it the prepper's portfolio. It's guns, it's gold, and it's Campbell's soup, right? Yep. Yeah. So, Carol, you ended your 10th chapter with a very spicy sentence that I loved. I did. And, oh, that's good. I don't even remember and, what that was. And I was just curious, um, 
if you've had any like Bernie Sanders type people be triggered by it, but you ended the, the chapter with the sentence, if you believe greed exists, you should want capitalism. So please expand upon that. If somebody is appalled by that, like why is, if you if greed is a real thing, why is capitalism good? Because greed is capitalism, right? If you're a Bernie boy or Bernie bro. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so, um, <laughs> or if you're Gordon Gecko, greed is good. This right. is, I've been getting a lot of good feedback about this um, part, which was funny because this was a, one that I debated whether to keep in or not. And I thought it was important because it just gives people a different way to look at the world in a sort of economic but non-economic way. So greed, I feel like anybody who's being honest can agree, is part of human nature. There are, you know, a couple of, of Mother Teresa's out there, but at the end of the day, people are greedy. It's just part of who we are. We try to fight against it, but whatnot. So if you think greed exists, which I hear, you know, capitalists are greedy. It's not that just like people who are greedy go into capitalism and then like everyone else goes into like politics. It's just that people are greedy. But capitalism has guardrails. It, 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 it is a, a unsystem that basically is set up to leverage greed because it makes people want to do good things to pursue profits that end up benefiting other people. And if they get too greedy, us as the consumers or employees or whoever end up pushing back. And over periods of time, that regulates itself. When you have force and coercion in a government, there is no self-regulation mechanism. Like, sure, you can theoretically vote somebody out of office and get the next greedy person that's in the same party or the other party that looks almost exactly the same, but systemically, it doesn't shift that at all. And then they've got this force and coercion where you have to deal with them. So there's no competition to sort of compete away that greed. So, you know, people always like to say like, oh, everyone's so greedy. And I'll push it back. Like, have you ever been greedy? Well, no, I'm not greedy. And that's what I use the coupon example um, you know, with Uber is everyone hates surge prices because, you know, oh, you're making me pay more. But it's really a regulator of supply and demand in the market. But if there's the supply and demand is mismatched in the other direction and they're using a coupon to incent you to take an Uber, you're not greedy. Trying to save yeah, money is not greedy. Yeah. So I just try to like kind of like you know, make people laugh a little bit about that so they can look at it and go, okay, yeah, like I get it. And I am only just looking at it through this lens. But if you do believe in reality, which means you believe in greed as part of human nature, then you would want to have capitalism as the system that harnesses and leverages that versus, you know, socialism or other central planning that just sort of pretends that it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. The the whole thing is, it always drives me crazy. Cause I, I got a few friends that are Bernie bros and, you know, they're good people and they, they, they know that things are off. They just have the wrong solution. They know healthcare is too expensive. They know, they know that like there's people that have way too much that's not merited, but it's like, yeah, you can't do that without the state. You want more state. Like, you know, I, I try to explain that to him all the time. And I think you did a phenomenal job breaking that down. But um, I, well, I hope you'll give it to them as a resource and just ask them to read it objectively. Because I, I was just explaining this to someone earlier today. Like, I actually feel like at this point in time, I have more in common with the Bernie bros and like mm -hmm. the super progressives than I do with like some of the basic liberals and frankly, some of the conservatives. Because like you said, we've identified the same issues. They just don't have the economics background to understand that like their solutions aren't based in reality and economics and, and don't work. They kind of, they have the good intentions, but they haven't kind of done the strategy on the outcomes. And I, and I feel like, and this is a, like kind of like a logical growth over time that, you know, when you're young and you don't have that experience, it's logical to be in that sort of Bernie bro space. But as you gain more knowledge and, and history and if you have the opportunity wealth that you start to come around to these concepts. So I'm actually very hopeful of, even though I like to you know kid around and make fun of the Bernie bros, like I actually feel a big connection to a lot of them and think they're on the right track in hitting those like here are things that we need to be concerned about. They just need to mm -hmm. better understand why there's a different solution that actually will work and that what they're doing is, is what they're suggesting is actually feeding the problem that they've identified. So. Yeah, I'll even go a step further and say we 
people like us have an obligation to go recruit those people right now because they're lost. Yeah. They, they saw their guy get screwed over by the system twice. Give them this book. Say, here, yes. I'm give it to you for free, Bernie, bro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you don't want to pay for this, but read it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, yeah. it would, it would do a great service to them if they could just get past that dirty word of capitalism that they think is just so evil. Um, well, which is another reason I talk about the branding, right? And like, yeah. don't call it that, just call it freedom and choice and, and free Yep. choice and free markets and non-coerced like call it whatever you want call it fred i don't care it's really <laughs> about the principle and capitalism has become so bastardized in terms of what people think that it means anyway that like go talk to them about it and from a principles standpoint or from a a different language standpoint and meet them there because if, if that's going to make them more receptive that's all that matters like none of this like you know I mean, we all know words have no meaning anymore anyway. They've changed the meaning no. of everything. So, yeah, like, might as well just, like, throw that one out there, too. Well, you know what's funny is right before we started recording, I just came back. Um, I live in a small town outside of Rockford. But um, we have a little town festival going on right now, like a carnival. And I got four oh. kids and my wife, and we just went down there. And I was looking around, and I just read your book today, so it was fresh in my head. And I was like, this is, like, just the epitome of capitalism. Like, these are just people trying to, like – creatively extort money from you voluntarily like hey come right. to this one give me some money and then right. and like yeah it's overpriced we all know this is nonsense but we all come here voluntarily anyways and guess what right. i would do it again because it beat the heck out of sitting inside the house with four kids <laughs> on a friday night so it's all voluntary and yeah just people came out with creative ways like hey i bet you i can compete my stand next to this guy by coming up with a different game to come to this way or this ride and i was like this it's capitalism. Everyone's here voluntarily. Yeah, it's all overpriced. Yeah, we're we're but we're all choosing to be here because it's mutually beneficial. Yeah, no, it's great, and I and I love the fact too with the small end of it, and like the carnival is is a great one. Um, you know th that really is the free market. You know, there, there's no government coming in and trying to say, well, if you've got the like dart balloon thing, like you get to be over here. But if you have the like, you know, hoops over the bottle thing, like you have to be over here. And you know, uh, you with the bunny toss, like you're non-essential. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So there's right. none yep. of that, right? It's just pure freedom and choice, which is why we need to preserve that level of decentralization um, because it provides economic freedom. Those folks have ch chosen to do that lifestyle. You've chosen to partake in it. It is you know, mutually beneficial and they get money to go out and put into their communities and you know continues to grow and everybody benefits. Yeah. And then you don't have like a Bernie Sanders guy sitting there like, Oh, and the guy with the zipper, and he's got all the tickets. He's got more money than everyone else. And we need to give it to the guy with the balloon stand over here with the squirt guns. He's not good enough. <laughs> so you don't have, there's no redistribution going on either. Right, exactly, exactly. So I did like that, um, speaking of decentralization, like I, I knew the answer like was cronyism and that was an issue. And they were engulfing small business by lobbying the government because they have way more lawyers, money and all that stuff. But when you broke down how small business is decentralized and harder to control, like that was a light bulb moment. Very early on in the book, I was like, holy crap. Like that's what, that's exactly why the powers that be probably don't care for it and they don't want to help it. Because when you use the example of the meeting, you know, they got all the small business owners together and no one could agree on anything. And I was like, but that's how it's supposed to be right. like that's for what? Probably the first hundred and some years of the country's existence. That's how it was. Right. Well, that example was under FDR that I gave just to show the yes. scope of that. That's the history of small has, al has always been decentralized and hard to control. Yeah. And, and that, that was a real light bulb moment for me because it's, I mean, everyone just does their own thing. Everyone makes money. You do business with this person and it's great. But then once you have mega conglomerate Walmart move in, all the small businesses die and Walmart changes all the, the you know, the zoning laws, all the local regulations and, and they get tax incentives to do it. They, and get, then, right, they get the roll out the red carpet. We want you to come here. We're going to give you a special deal, but all these people who've been here forever we're not going to give them the special deal and we're going to make it harder for them to compete with you. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and, and like my brother worked in uh, the oil fields in North Dakota for a little bit. And, you know, some of that was pretty rural still. So it was still pretty decentralized. And he was describing, he's like, you go into a general store because you want to get like a few things. He's like, but you can also buy a rifle. You can get a Red Bull and a rifle <laughs> all in the same place. And I was like, that sounds awesome. And I really <laughs> need more of that. You know, it, it's, it, it, I, 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 that example was really good. And I thought that even someone who is maybe begrudgingly reading your book, cause they're like, oh, this is going to be, you know, I, I thought that example was, it really highlighted the importance of it Thank because you. when, yeah, like, and you, you described it when you get centralized closer to the government, they all become one entity. I yeah, mean, I mean, I think if I, people really could, like, I, the one thing I didn't put in the book that I wish I would have is a, just like a pie chart that basically was just split down the middle and showed 30.2 million small businesses on one side, half the economy, half the jobs, and 10 to 15,000 big businesses on the other side, half the economy and half the jobs, even though I said it verbally. I think if I would have shown that, that maybe that would have like, that's just something in, in retrospect, as I've been talking about it, that I wish I could have just done that visual because that's really like the battle, right? Like, like they half the economy is in the hands of 10 to 15,000 businesses and half of it's a free market with, you know, before COVID 30.2 million small businesses. Like, do you want to start pushing more from the small side towards these, you know, handful of businesses. I don't think you do. This is the the checks and balance of power here. It's still probably a little bit lopsided. Like to see a little bit more moving towards that decentralized side to balance yeah. that out. Um, but that's you know, if you're the politician, who's going to give you the lobbying dollars? Who's going to who's going to fund your campaign? Who's it easier to, to deal with? And you know, when you've got the special interests and you know unions again, point person, point organization to deal with this decentralized group of people. So that's why they push these things because it benefits them and their power. And we see it, and I made the case in the book, whether it is the amount that the government is spending, the amount of laws that they've passed, the things that they have become involved in, the scope of how much they've grown just over, like since the Clinton administration is staggering. I don't think people really put their heads around this, around like what this looked like, like in like 1999 versus what it looks like not that, you know, two decades later, it's like two completely different worlds. And that should scare the bejesus out of everyone. So I yes. hope that like, as you get into it, that that also becomes um, part of part of the takeaway. Have so, you seen the uh, the HBO documentary? I think it's called Into the Swamp or The Swamp. Mm -mm. So they they talk about that. And, and they follow around like Thomas Massey and members of the Freedom oh, Caucus. Yeah, I love him. And, and he just talks about it. He's like, yeah, he's like, I'm only in these caucuses because you have to fundraise X amount of dollars to get into the next level. There's like A, B, C, D <laughs> level. And he's like, yeah, you got to like basically be like Nancy Pelosi fundraising, you know, $50 million a year to get into some of these caucuses. So like, it's all the same people in all these caucuses. And then they talk to all the same lobbyists from all the big corporations. And it was, it was really mind blowing. You know, I, I consider myself relatively in tune with a lot of this stuff and it's just like the more you dig it's yeah, it's all just, it's one big machine and one big really horror story. You unfurl it. You think it's this guy. And then you're like, oh, no, the call's coming from inside the house. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're just the guy that trips over the, the log and as the right. person, you know, <laughs> the, the serial killer chasing. back into the house with the chainsaws all blaring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Carol, what's the response been like from small business owners across the country? You've been getting fan mail. I mean, I'm sure you had an overwhelmingly positive response from people having you be their voice throughout all this. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> it's interesting. Small business owners are, are a little busy right now. <laughs> yeah, a little <laughs> like, bit, yeah. So, like, if they haven't died, they can't hire. And so, like, they're, like, literally being, like, chief cook and bottle washer. And so um, I don't think they're super focused on this. 
Uh, the the critical reception has been fantastic. The, the, across the political spectrum, overwhelmingly positive. I've had a lot of small businesses reach out just for help. Like I, I had one of the um, women and minority-owned businesses that was rejected by the SBA um, for relief fund money after being told that they were getting $57,000, confirming their bank account and telling them it would be in there for uh, like three to seven days afterwards. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about this, but basically the SBA was found to have discriminated when it made those initial grants because it prioritized people based on race. And so instead of doing the right thing and going back and advocating for small businesses and getting money so that everybody can be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And again, we're talking billions of dollars, fractions of the trillions that they've already spent on a bunch of nonsense. They pulled the grants from those almost 3000 women and minority owned businesses. So I have people like that who are reaching out to me being like, I don't know where to turn. Like the people are supposed to be advocating for me. The cabinet member that's dedicated to small business just screwed over 3,000 vulnerable businesses. Like, what do we do? So like, that's the kind of stuff that people like know I'm on their side. So they're not like, oh, hey, like you did a great job. It's like, hey, I need a lifeline. And you seem to be the only person who gives the kind of brutal. I mean, yeah, so it, it is really brutal. Um, and so, you know, as we were talking about offline, a lot of the mainstream media and bigger platforms haven't wanted to touch this, wanted to touch this. So like, I'm like unintentionally proving the thesis again of the book that nobody cares about small business. And um, I also have a feeling that because it is nonpartisan, that that doesn't do me any favors. Like I guarantee you, if this said Trump's war on small business, or if this said oh. Biden's war on small business, that I would have sold 10 times the number of copies, but that would have been dishonest. And that's not the point. The point that this, this is a bigger problem. This is a systemic problem that, you know, swapping out one guy for another or one gal or a couple of people isn't going to fix, as I'm sure Mr. Massey <laughs> expounded upon um, in the documentary. And so to like try and pigeon this into a partisan issue, um, is icky and doesn't help, you know, economic freedom or, you know, half the economy that's, you know, working for small businesses. Um, but I do feel like that's the point we're at in, you know, corporate press right now that they want to have that hot button that either you love it or you hate it. And so like, oh, well, it, well you know, it wasn't Trump or it was Trump. Oh, no, it wasn't, but he wasn't even, you know. So like if I had done this to be icky, that, you know, that sells, but it's icky. So I just, you know, I, I feel like it's going to have a long tail. I feel like this is going to be a conversation piece. I feel like as more data comes out, the stuff is going to become more obvious and people are going to start talking about it more. And like you, we all talked about, this is going to be that first historical account and a, you know, I think, and from what people have been saying, a fair account of what's happened on all sides and giving people sort of the tools and perspective and education to be able to talk about it. So I'm hopeful, um, but you know, it's it's been a little, little frustrating in terms, and not just for me, for my publisher. I mean, this is this is a HarperCollins published book, um, and you know, we had spent a lot of time kind of thinking about it, and you really thought, hey, this is the biggest untold story. Like we're the first to market, like telling this really big story that impacts everybody and so it's a little bit of a head scratcher on this one yeah that's uh i mean especially given your resume with you know with the corporate media you know you think yes, that right exactly right yeah they should have yeah so is there any reason why do they tell you explicitly like we're not going to push this agenda or they just don't respond to emails no they're just they're you know in terms of um you know and again harper collins is handling most of the press um, but you know, I told you some other bigger platforms where I have relationships where they're just like, yeah, you know, just, I, I don't know, or we don't have a spot right now, or, you know, they're just kind of get it, giving the runaround. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's really disappointing. And I've actually made the determination at this point that, I mean, there are shows on big networks that I've done, as I said, many times talking about nonsense. <laughs> hey, can you come <laughs> on and talk about this like idiotic thing? Sure. Whatever that I'm not going to say yes to anymore. 
because I'm like personally offended on behalf of the small business owners that they wouldn't talk about this important topic. And that's like the most important thing that I've been trying to explain to people. Like this book will change my life zero. Like, like other, other than like, Hey, this was something cool I did and, you know, documenting a pandemic, like in terms of my life trajectory or what, like it's not going to have any iota of an effect on it, but it is critically important to preserving economic freedom and to giving people those tools to make sure that we preserve wealth creation opportunities in this country. And so that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping like other people will take it and run with it. Like, you know, you might like going out and talking to your Bernie bro friends and having a book club and like converting 10 of them and then having them go out and convert 10 <laughs> more. And honestly, I hope the concept of the war on small business becomes like too big to fail and just becomes part of the vernacular and people don't even remember like who said it first and like how it came to be. And it's not about me. It's just about, we need to shift this because this is not something that I'm going to be able to affect by myself. This needs to become a movement. Yes. And I, you know, even like before your book was released, I was talking with like some family members and I, I was like not only did they just totally crap all over you know business owners restaurant owners especially you know all these folks they just totally crapped all over them and I said not only that but think about the psychological aspect like if I was if, if like in 2019 I was saving money getting ready like I want to open a bar like I think that'd be so cool now you fast forward to now it's like people are going to think twice oh, about yeah. doing it. I mean, they're, they, the, the morale amongst these people. And then now to see that you won't get any help if, if they decide this happen, you know, let's say with this Delta variant starts to become a thing and they start locking down again, like they, now they know they're going to get no help. And yeah. I hope that if, it comes to that again, that these business owners will be like, yeah, we're just going to stay open. Go ahead yeah. and shut us down. I, I'm going I'm to go on a tour and tell them to all stay open yeah. um, if that happens. But to, to take that a step further, Tyler, you have to understand, like, if you've made it this far, you probably have debt from before the pandemic even started that you've personally guaranteed. You've probably taken your own pay cut um, you know, in some cases you may not have taken anything. You're hanging on by a thread. You finally get to the point where they let your customers come back. So you have this crazy demand. Now you can't hire. So you have people who are flooding in, you have inflation. So like if you're, you know, whatever it is you're serving or selling is probably costing you more. You don't have enough people. So you have a, people coming in, let's say it's a restaurant's. You you have like two servers in yourself. People have bad a bad experience after not being in your restaurant for a year and whatever, and then they're never going to come back again. And again, it's not your fault. You're literally trying mm -hmm. to compete with the government for employees and try to come out of this horrendous situation. And the average consumer isn't going to give you a pass and be like, oh, like, it's fine. It's going to be like, well, I waited like three and a half hours for my nachos and they forgot my Coke and screw it. I'm never going back to the small business. I'm going to Chili's next time. And so like it just it's just compounding the the angst and the challenges for these small existing small business owners, particularly the ones that have been affected. Like it's not over and it's not going to be over for a long time. And this this fallout is going to be going on for a long time. And you're, by the way, you're not going to see it. And this is the problem because so much money was given out during the pandemic from stimulus checks and extended unemployment and whatnot. Um, and because you know, people were out of work and looking for things to do, people started side businesses, like at record levels, like millions, like not, they didn't start a restaurant, but they started like, whatever I'm selling, you know, pens, you know, on the internet or whatever. So, What's going to happen in the media, and I'm telling you this right now, they're going to look and they're going to say, well, businesses are actually, there are more small businesses than there were. It's great. This was, this wasn't, that there was no economic impact, but shutting down and, and killing off, you know, a million or 2 million small businesses that have been around for 
Um, in some cases, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Southport Lanes and Lakeview that was about to celebrate its 100-year anniversary, made it through Prohibition as a bar and is shutting wow. down in the Lakeview Damn. neighborhood. So you're losing you know, the 100-year-old business or the 35-year-old business or the family institution or whatever, and now you have it like some guy selling like 10 pens on the internet, and you're going to be like, see, like it's, it's a wash, it's fine. And you cannot let that history be rewritten. It sounds like the recently released jobs report too, where they're like, we, we created three and a half million jobs. Like created. you just gave back <laughs> jobs that you stole. Yeah. Like I, I, I've been on that since day one. That was my, that was my biggest thing. It's like, you've created no jobs. They're not, we're in a deficit. We're literally down like seven some odd million since February of last year. And we have 9.2 that need to be filled. Like you've literally created no jobs. No, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, they're just, they're, they don't create anything. They're parasites. Like the free market is the host. The public sector is the parasite. And now the parasites almost gotten a lot larger than it was before COVID. And I think it's going to get larger than the host pretty soon. And I don't know how sustainable that is. We have a parasite larger than the lifeblood, but, um, I have light uh, in my room. I made it dark. I made it light. It look at all the light I've created. No, exactly. <laughs> you created nothing. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we've been doing this new thing on our show where at the end we do some rapid fire questions. So you know, okay. a, a couple of them are, um, you know, they're, they're a little, uh, PG 13 ish. I hope you don't mind. Not too bad, but, uh, <laughs> I'm fine. All right. So, um, first one. So the Biden administration labels you an extremist domestic terrorist and they arrest you. What song do they put on repeat to get you to talk? Oh my God, Cars for Kids. What's that? You don't know the Cars for Kids commercial? Okay, so. I'm, I'm not going to do it. So if we're going to, so <laughs> second one. We'll put the link like, in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, put, put, no, definitely don't. Like, because people, because like literally that is a domestic, active domestic terrorism to play that. Um, you, if it's not that, it's We Built This City. Okay. By Jefferson Starship, the worst song ever created in their history of time. It's an actual song and not a jingle. Fair enough. Okay. Being that you're an Illinois resident, you might appreciate this one. What would you rather do? Give Joe Biden his nightly sponge bath or give a full body deep tissue massage to Illinois governor JB Pritzker. Oh man. I'm going with the Biden sponge bath for sure. That's like, that's not even, that's not even a hard choice. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, next one. Uh, what would you rather sit through? A corporate critical race theory diversity training or let a government official vaccinate you on your front doorstep? Well, at least I could tune out the CRT thing and it would give me some like comedic things that I could be disruptive. So I feel like I'd have more to work with under that scenario. Plus Agreed. it's always good. Knowledge is power and it's always good to know like what the other person's thinking so you can know how to <laughs> That's the, that's the way I'm going strategic on that one. I'd pick the same. Okay, last one. Which cult would you consider more dangerous to supervise children? The Branch Davidians of Waco or the Illinois public school system? Illinois public school system. That's not a cult either. Hell yeah. <laughs> easy, guys. Yeah, I, got, I, last I, have one, I have one more for you. Yes. So <laughs> as, as a Chicago resident, Cubs or Sox? So, you know, I'm like a horrible person that's sort of like like I liked them both growing up and we went to both, you know, like I'm from the suburbs, but I have to say in terms of place in my heart, I went to see the Cubs win game seven of the 2016 oh, world series. So given awesome. the fact that that was like one of the five best days of my entire, like it was so meaningful. Like I would just have to give it to the Cubs from that standpoint, but like I'm, I'm very inclusive. I don't like to join like that kind of a thing, especially when it's uh, the same city or whatever. They're right. Not, I get that. They're not in the same division, but like that was like the most amazing thing. We were watching game six and uh, I remember like, it was like the fourth inning and they started like, like a store started like running away and I turned to my husband and I'm like, Oh my God, there's going to be a game seven. Like we should totally go. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah. And I got on StubHub and I got four tickets and I called my sister and her husband and I'm like, you guys are coming with I'm like, I don't know. It's I'm like, shut up. And we just like canceled all our meetings and we drove the next day to Cleveland 
and we watched the cut that like his, awesome. the most, by the way which cool. we ended up being like the most historic game in sports history like with the the 10 innings and the rain delay the whole it was like like magical so in that they have a special place in my heart because i participated in that so okay That's one last chicago land <laughs> question is jeans and jude's the best hot dog on the planet which place jeans and jude's in river park i believe it is Never been there. I don't. Is that the one that's on um, the like displays, like like where the yeah. river, river road, where River Road, yep, River Road, over? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the fries on it. Yeah, you know, I here's the thing about me is I don't like to wait. Gotcha. <laughs> so like the, the likelihood that I would stand in line for like anything, let alone a hot dog, is nil. So I've actually never had one. Wow, you gotta change that. Yeah. See, um, since since we're from Rockford, that's like a delicacy to get out that way. So every time we're out yeah. there, it's like we order a ton and bring it back for the family. And but you know. but I will tell you, strangely enough, where the best burger is in Chicago, which is on the North Shore in either Northbrook or Vernon Hills. If you've ever been to the Claim Company and gotten the mother load, that is Ooh. like my favorite and it's like a build your own thing so like not only can you decide what kind of meat which obviously you're going to get a normal burger but some people are weird and they don't um but you can get like what kind of bun you can get like a pretzel or ciabatta or whatever you can get all kinds of cheeses all kinds of toppings and all kinds of stuff and then they have Merck's cheddar if you want to order a side of it to dip your fries oh, in, which is always delicious. delicious so um i would highly recommend strangely getting out to like you know this little like suburban thing called the clam company <laughs> which is really good <laughs> Very that cool. sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, Carol, that brings us right to about an hour. Um, I want to thank you for your time. And if you want to go ahead and plug all your social media, your book, anywhere people can find you. All right. So the first thing, as I said, this has to be a movement. So the war on small business. Um, I will also just to make this extra difficult, like think about supporting a small business with this bookshop.org, your local small business bookseller. Like you don't have to buy it at the one click place. You can if you want. I'm a capitalist, but like that's that. And I just I hope that you'll sit down with some people who need to discuss this, get them to read it, start talking about, make them spread the word. And then I spend most of my time, as you two know, on Twitter at Carol J.S. Roth. Um, you must have a warped sense of humor to participate. So if you do, uh, I welcome you to join me on, on the Twitterverse. Well, that's great. it. Awesome. Well, Carol, I really enjoyed your book. And for our listeners, I highly recommend it that you go out yes. and, uh, you know, I did the audio book. I don't have much time to read. I, like I said, I have a bunch of little kids, but I do a thousand miles a week in my car. So audio is my way. Um, so it, it was question. I've been wondering, how's the narrator? Good. Very good. I, his voice sounds so familiar and I do only audio books. Okay. Um, and I feel like he's had to have done at least one other book I listened to, but I can't put my finger on it, but very good. I mean, it was. If, if you if yeah. you care if you care about hearing the stories about audiobooks and how this like the behind the scenes stuff, so I was not allowed to do either of my books. It was a much bigger bummer for my first book because my first book is like literally written how I speak, so it's like full of humor and it like it needs that and that wasn't allowed. Um, this one I was a little bit more like, eh, it's technical and I'm sure it's a big pain in the butt, so that's fine. But my stipulation is always that I have a man read for me. Because the, and they, they threw me a list of ladies and I'm like, it's not happening because I don't want people to get confused and think that I'm the one reading the book. So it's super clear if it's a dude. So they sent me a whole list and the, the gentleman, um, Chris Coffey, who I chose was the one I thought would be the best, but I actually haven't heard it yet. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, no, it was it was really good. It, it just it is driving me crazy though because I was thinking about today. I was like, I know there's a book where I, it, maybe it sounds just like him or it was him. Does no, he do I'm a lot sure of them? It's definitely him because like they give you a list of like okay. here are like the big guys who like yep. read all of these books, and so like he he he's a, like a super pro for sure. But that just because they're super pro doesn't mean that they do a good job. They could be super right. boring but just professional. So I was curious as to. Well, I was very I was happy with it. No but the one on the one who did my other book is not good. I I would I would not again because it's it's missing the tone and the humor. So I never recommend the audiobook for my first book. But for this one, I think it's fun. Cool. Well, yeah. yeah and for our listeners, we uh, will be at Freedom Fest July twenty first through twenty fourth in Rapid City, South Dakota. Um, at Twitter at Paul's to the walls with a Z 
and please rate and review on iTunes. So Carol, thanks again so much. Yeah, thank you. The book was great. I'm I'm planning on sharing it with plenty others. Thank you. How do I get you? Like, should I send you like some like over to Freedom Fest so you can like hand them out over there? I, sure. I, I'd be I'd be willing to do that. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Let's connect offline. I'll, I'll get you guys some, and you can just hand them out. Hand them out to uh, to bros in need. So. Absolutely. That sounds great. Yeah. We'll work that out. Thank you, Carol. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. Have a great weekend. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit score grows, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Bill Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC, out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.